0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, before we get started, I want to welcome back the Katrina, or sorry, not Katrina, wow, Ida refugees over here. Glad to have you guys back in town. Um, anyone else's first time? I was told we have a couple people here for the first time. Raise your hand, if you will. Who's this over here? Calvin. Kelvin? Yeah. And who's that sitting next to you? My wife, Jeanette. And Jeanette. All right, nice to meet you guys. Glad to have you. Anyone else first time in this room? Who we got back here? Andy. Andy. All right, Andy, nice to meet you. All right, write those down, everybody. You know when Peter gets back here, they will be added to the name game. So, (laughs) all right. um, We're going to continue this week looking at how the promises about Christ in the Old Testament are... um, as revealed through the revelation of Christ in the New Testament affects the way that we live every day. All right? How does that affect the way that I show up at work on Monday? How does that affect the way that I engage in relationships throughout the week, particularly difficult relationships? Last week we saw how the hope in the eternal kingdom and having a clear image of what we are going towards affects the way that we live today, knowing our inheritance. Uh, helps us deal with the difficult, the difficulties, the storms, the uncomfortableness of living in this world. Um, and today, what I hope to see is that, is that the person of Christ, the uniqueness of the one promised in the Old Testament, as revealed and explained in Christ in the New Testament, helps us face the conundrums that we deal with, uh, just in, in regular, in this world, in this regular life. Um, and I think Christians are increasingly facing. Conundrum. So, what's, what's a conundrum? It, it's just a it's a situation where there's not a clear answer on how to respond to this situation. So, uh, an example of that would be would be I don't know. Those of you who aren't parents, I don't know how much you realize parenting is just making it up as you go along. <laughs> right. Here's an example. Parents will relate to this. You you hear from the other room some sort of crying, screaming happening between your kids, and you walk in. And they're just, there's no words happening. There's just, they're crying or yelling or both. And your job now is figure out, what do I do next? Right? There's no, there's no clear answer. Do I come in like the riot police and I just shut it down? Right? Whatever toy you're fighting over, that's mine now. We're done. I'm not dealing with this. Do, do you come in as sort of the, the, the peacemaker trying to restore joy and happiness, right? And so by, by making them laugh or having them apologize, you're just trying to get back to enjoying each other as quickly as you can. Do, do you come in as um, the detective or the inquisitor and you separate them and then you interrogate them individually to try to figure out who did what and who should be punished and, and what the right response to the situation is? Right? And, the, and the challenge as you're standing in that moment is, is you don't know what the outcome is going to be exactly. Right? Once, you've, once you've dealt with your kids for a while, you kind of get a sense of like, well, generally this is a helpful way to approach this. But then you add a third kid in the mix and you've got to figure it out all over again. Right? There's no clear, this is the way that you always deal with this situation. Right? You might know a lot about parenting. You might know a lot about right and wrong, reconciliation, forgiveness. You might have a lot of abstract concepts that apply to the situation. But the exact response isn't clear in that moment. Right? Parents are going to do things different ways. And I think Christians are facing situations like this pretty regularly now. What do you do if you encounter someone who tells you they are transgender and asks you to use their alternate pronoun? Do you, for the sake of that friendship, for the sake of loving and continuing to relate to them, to continuing to have an influence and witness in their life, use the pronoun that they request that you use and know this is just a word, this is their understanding, it's not the place I want to enter this conversation, I want to talk to them about Jesus. And so not to give an offense, I'm going to use the pronoun they asked me to do. Or do you stand on truth and say, listen, I love you, but I can't do that. And here's why. The Bible says this is, this is truth. This is the created reality God has given. And, and I, I'm going to have to continue using what I believe represents the truth. What do you do when you encounter the weakness and sin of people in leadership? Right? You, could, you can think of lots of stories that may come to mind. People far away, people close to you. What do you do when, when you see that what they have done, the way that they have related as fallen humans themselves, has hurt people around them? Do you do you respond with loyalty to that person and say, Yes, we're all but we're all sinners? And and look at all the good that's come from their life. I don't want to make a deal about this one time that they failed. I want to to love them and care for them and and remember all the good that's come from that. We're in such a critical time where everybody's criticizing everything going on. I wanna I wanna love and, and stand by people. Do you identify with the people that they've hurt? And say, I, I, look, this harm has, if, if I stand by this leader, it's going to reaffirm the harm that's been done to these people. And I want to love them well. I want to take that suffering seriously. And so I need to stand apart from this leader unless he repents and can be restored to, um, to just a right position to care for these other people. What do you do when you encounter other Christians who, who say something in your small group or um, just in a casual conversation about some sort of hot topic? Something that maybe you care a lot about and very much disagree with the way that they have expressed that topic. Do you respond? Do, do you not bring it up? Do you, you know, they say something about um, Black Lives Matter. They say something about... Uh, Abortion, not just the, the whether it's right or wrong, but how we should respond, what actions we should do, whether we should vote for this person or that person for that reason. What do you do when someone disagrees with you about vaccines or face masks, the obvious issue we're all confronted with all the time now? Do you, do you say they say something about it in the conversation? Do you decide, for the sake of unity, I'm not going to bring this up? This isn't something that we should fight about. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push this to the side and just remain silent about that. For the sake of this small group, for the sake of this friendship. Or do you say, no, this is something that matters. This is truth and I need to respond and say something about this. And so I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to identify that and try to bring some truth and some correction to the thing that you just said. These are conundrums that we're facing regularly. And while the Bible gives us truth about all of those topics in an abstract way, there are true things that you can say about all of those topics. Exactly how to respond in that moment is not clear. And it's not clear you can see Christians divide about the right response. Peter's waving at me in the back. I'm not sure what he's doing. Oh, Peter has notes. If you got, raise your hand and he'll come around. <laughs> but, but Peter, but, um, back to my place. Christians divide about the right response to these things, right? What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? Some will say, respond with unity. Some will say, we need to stand on truth. And I can make both arguments. Fortunately, though, the Bible deals in conundrums. Right? It may not give us a clear chapter and verse for how to respond to each one of those situations specifically. But it gives us some concepts. It gives us some principles that we need to hold together with us as we engage and respond to all of those situations. I think especially we see the right tone and the right method to respond when we look at the person of Christ. Because Christ came to resolve a conundrum. Right? If you read through the Old Testament, you find that there is, there is a, a conundrum, a tension trying to be resolved as God, who is both righteous and loving, relates to people who are sinful. How is he going to work that out? How is he going to respond to us in a way that that stands and does not compromise his righteousness, but fully expresses his love that he declares for his people. You see this in, the, in all the stories in the Old Testament. You see this especially clearly in the prophets. And one good example of this is Hosea. right? And sometimes you read the prophets and you feel like God is just sort of this wishy-washy emotional Uh, basket case a little bit. He's kind of back and forth on the same issue. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And you just say, God, make up your mind. You, You read passages that sound like this. Hosea 9, 15 to 17. He says, "...because of all their wickedness in Gilgal, I hated them there. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit." Even if they bear children, I will slay their cherished offspring. My God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. So you see, God stands on his righteousness and says, I will judge their sin. But then two chapters later, nothing has happened in the meantime. You get this, Hosea 11, verses 8 through 10. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboiim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. right? And you read passages like this and you want to say, well, which one is it, God? <laughs> which one are you going to do? Make up your mind. How can you say you have changed? And I'm going to skip right over that theological debt. <laughs> it right there. We've talked about that before. How, how is God going to resolve these two traits within him, right? Because they seem like they're in competition. They seem like God has to choose. Either I'm going to respond with righteousness or I'm going to respond with love and mercy. And that's how it feels when we go to respond to conundrums in our own life, right? I have to choose, am I going to do this? Am I going to do this? People think of the Old Testament as as a place that highlights the righteousness of God, the wrath of God, right? If you talk to people sort of characterize the Old Testament, they'll say he's always destroying people, he's always judging them, he's sending them off. But, But you see here, the Old Testament is just as much displaying the love of God, right? Just as often as he sends people into exile, just as often as he wipes them out, he also refrains from doing so. Remember Adam, he said, in the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. And what happened to the day that he ate of it? He didn't die. He dies eventually, but not that day. What happens with Noah? All of the nations are wicked, but I'm going to save this one. I'm going to start over, even though you know God knew. It wasn't going to be even a whole generation before sin is right back where it was. When God comes against Israel for making the golden calf, right? They've just agreed to be his people. And before Moses even gets back with all the rules on how to do that, they have created an idol and forgotten their God. And God says, I'm going to wipe them out. But then Moses prays and he listens to his prayer and does not destroy them. He sends prophets like Hosea, but it's a whole generation before he actually carries out his wrath that he promises to send, right? You might sound a little bit like like it's a parent who just never counts to three, right? When you read God in the Old Testament, this thing that used to frustrate my dad to no end, but he tells the story of when a family came over and I was a kid, and there was a guy who would do the counting thing. My dad did not do the counting thing, Um, but he would count, and he said he would count. He'd go, one, two, and then you just get this long pause, and so my dad said one time he did that, and he went, one, two, and my dad said, three. Now do something about him. <laughs> and that's what we want God to do, right? God, make up your mind. Do something. Stand on a principle. Make a choice. And it's into this controversy, this tension, this conundrum that we get the person of Christ who is the resolution to God's love and God's righteousness. And what's really interesting about this is that God solves that conundrum by sending us another conundrum, right? Divinity and humanity are combined. And in doing that, love and righteousness are reconciled you see this, the one he promises is a unique being. And if you remember, Peter's been tracing this idea from the Old Testament. Where does this begin? Anytime something begins, what book of the Bible is it here? Genesis. Genesis, <laughs> Genesis 3. God promises the offspring who will come to crush the serpent's head. And as you track this story down, you learn who this offspring and what kind of offspring this is going to be. Right Through Abraham, we find it's going to come from this one chosen nation. Genesis 12 and 15 says that Abraham's offspring will be made a great nation that will be a blessing to all the nations around. Then you skip ahead a little more and you find through David, this offspring, the one God will call his son, is going to be made into a great kingdom. We looked at this last week. But we notice in Psalm 2, God says, he is my son. It's getting a little bit unique there, that any king would be called the son of God. Eventually, we know that David's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, falls. And and the promises weren't fulfilled in that kingdom, as you might have thought. But the prophets, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah, look forward to the offspring who is still coming. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 says that from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, So from David's line, there's going to come a new branch, a new kingdom, a new king. And in this king, the spirit of the Lord is said to dwell. Isaiah 9, 6, looking for um, the begotten son, says that he is going to be called not only a great king, not only will the government be on his shoulders, he will be called mighty God. How can that be? How can this promised one be? And that's another conundrum for us in the Old Testament. Who can be of the line of Adam, from the tribe of Israel, from the kingdom of David? What man can be all of that and also be called mighty God? And we find we don't understand how that's resolved until we see Jesus show up on the scene. And when he does, we see that divinity and humanity are united in one person. Colossians one 18 through 18-20 describes it this way. It says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. You see both of those conundrums resolved in that passage. He's the firstborn, he's created, but also the fullness of God dwells in him. And through this uniting of God, of humanity and divinity, we find that God makes peace peace, we find that the righteousness and the love of God are expressed together as one thing through the person of Christ. And what I think we see here is how much God has stuffed into this person. Things that we would think are are contradictory, that can't be reconciled, that are separate, right? God and man, righteousness and love, all contained in one person. This is infinity become limited. This is, this is the being who is timeless managed to fit himself into time. This is the creator become created. And at the end of the day, we, we, I can't explain to you exactly how that works, right? I can't write out on paper. I can't write a, an abstract or a thesis that, that explains how that was accomplished, People have written great books to explain all that is seen in the person of Christ, all that was done and united in him. And the good ones all end with this sort of statement, that that at the end of the day, there's just some mystery to this. We just cannot get our heads around how much is contained in the revelation of Jesus Christ. We just can't explain it. I just can't. It's, It's like you have a jar of water and oil. And it's not just like the water and oil are put in the same jar. It's, that the water, and it's not just that they're mixed, so mixed together you can't tell the difference. It's that water and oil somehow become one thing. Right? That's, I can't explain how that works, but that's kind of what it's like to see all that is contained within the person of Christ. That all of this is one thing. And, but while we can't explain it, we can't see it. Right? You look at the person of Christ and it's not confusing unless you just try to write it out on paper. He didn't give us an abstract explanation of, of how righteousness and love are resolved. He gave us a person. He gave us a picture. He gave us an image and a story that when you read that story, it makes sense. You can understand it. You know how to respond to it. And let's just, I just want to spend a little time looking at how we see in Christ righteousness and love united as one thing. Shown to be united as one thing. Because we know one who looks at Jesus is going to say on the one hand that he ever compromises righteousness. Right? If you read the story, if you read about Jesus, he never lowers the bar. And nowhere is this seen more clearly than in the Sermon on the Mount. I just read through a couple examples of of the righteousness of Jesus. He says, Matthew 8, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. One more, 43 and 44, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right, when Jesus approaches righteousness, he takes the standards in the Old Testament law and says, you thought the bar was here, but I'm telling you the bar is up here. This is my standard of righteousness. Right, it's easy for us to look around at the world and say, look at things like the increasing murder rates in the last couple of years. To look at, at a culture that is saturated with sexuality and increasingly pornographic. To, to look at cancel culture and, and recognize that it's teaching people to completely disassociate themselves with anyone who disagrees with them. Even people who they've been friends and, and allies with in the past. Right? It's easy to look at that and say, that is not passing the bar. That is unrighteousness. But when Jesus speaks about righteousness. He says things like this. He says, you see murder on the news. But listen, I'm telling you, when you have that flash inside of you, when your wife does something you dislike, when your children bother you, when someone cuts you off in traffic, when someone snubs you at work, what happens to you in that moment is something in you sends death at that person. And that's murder. Jesus says, you you look around and see that your culture is full of sexual immorality and the things that they watch and the things that they endorse. But I tell you that when you look at another person and you don't see the full humanity, the full image of God that I've created in them, instead what you see is a two-dimensional image of something that might do something for you. You have committed adultery with that person in their heart. You have devalued what God has designed. You notice that the world around you cancels their enemies. But let me ask you, have you loved your enemies? Those people out there that hate you, that love dislike everything that you're about, have you cut yourself off from them as well? Do you stay safe in the places that you have created, or do you go outside of where it's comfortable and love your enemies, because that is Jesus' standard of righteousness. No one who looks at him is going to ever say that he lowers the bar. No one's going to read him, read his sermons, and feel good about themselves. There's no question that he compromises. And at the same time, Jesus is always demonstrating his love for people. Just look at how he is when he gets around people just a few examples of this. The, the Samaritan woman, John 4. Right, there's this woman who goes out in the middle of the day, and probably because she's some sort of social pariah. Right, it, I, we don't know exactly her backstory or why she was where she was at, but we do know she's had five husbands. And so you can imagine the talk in the town around her. So she goes out in the middle of the day, and when Jesus encounters her, he speaks to her which is scandalous, not only because she is a social pariah and a woman, but because she was a Samaritan. And there's racial tension going on here. And when he speaks to her, he sees her. He treats her with respect. He, he relates to her in a way that, that even though he doesn't avoid the realities of her life, he doesn't avoid talking about that she's had five husbands and, and some touching on her situation. When she walks away from that encounter, she goes and tells everyone in the town, come talk to this guy. That's how it felt for her to encounter Jesus. She encountered love. Some of my favorite encounters are when Jesus encounters the disciples after his resurrection. And just the way that he restores Peter. The way that he, he clearly, knowingly deals with the fact that you denied even knowing me three times but I'm going to commission you three times to go and continue in the work that I have for you. The way that he encounters Thomas, who doubts that he has even risen from the dead, and he doesn't come in and say, I told you this was what I was going to do. Why don't you believe? All, look, 11 other people just told you this happened. Do you think they all went crazy at the same time? No, he says, Thomas, don't doubt. If you need to, put your hand in my side, put your fingers in my hands, believe in me. When he looks out at the crowds, Matthew nine thirty six, he says, When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Reflecting on, on the nature of Christ, the author of Hebrews describes him this way. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You can't read about the person of Jesus and doubt that he loved people. That when they encountered him, they felt his care, his compassion, his love. This is the harder part of me, for me to remember about God and about Christ. Because I love the big picture of God. I love seeing the God who created an infinite seeming number of stars. Who who creates all these things, who is the master, who is the Lord, who is the victorious conqueror, the eternal king. What's harder for me to remember in that is that that person is also the one who loves me specifically. That if Jesus showed up here, he would want to talk to me. He would want to know me. He would take me seriously. He would even like me. Those two things feel like such different images, and yet in the person of Christ, I see how they are one. And that's the kind of impact that Jesus has on people when he encounters them. Right? Jesus is always around sinners. We find that as we read through the Gospels. The, so much so that the Pharisees were upset with him for associating with sinners and tax collectors. And, and it's not like I think that he just was always going to find them out and, and going to their places. I think sinners want to be around him. They're always seeking him out. But when they do that, they walk away changed. You Remember the story of Zacchaeus. Right? Zacchaeus in Luke 19.2 were told as a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. This is in Jericho, and he, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Right? In case you haven't got the backstory for this, tax collectors were not everyone's favorite people. Right? Tax collectors, they, not only did they work for the enemy. Right? Rome was the occupying nation that had come in, and, and they were the ones who collected taxes. So they, you've compromised, and you're working for the enemy. But the, the method of tax collecting back in that day wasn't like filling out your 1040 today. Right? How much you owed was based a lot on how much that guy thought you owed. Right? And so this is a little bit more like a protection racket than some organized tax collecting system or calculation here. So when Zacchaeus goes around to collect taxes, his payment was probably based on how much extra he got out of you. That's how he's, he's, he works on commission, right? But it's how much commission he decides you owe him. So this isn't the favorite person, but he wants to get around Jesus, right? He climbs up in the tree just to see him. And then when Jesus sees him, he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And the conclusion of that one encounter is this, Luke 19:8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone or anything, I restore it fourfold, What was it about Jesus that made Zacchaeus not only want to be around this man, but that when he got around him, he was radically changed? He lives righteously in a way that he has not lived up to this point. That would be a hard thing to write out. How would would that encounter have gone? But you see the picture of Jesus, and it's not hard to imagine how love and righteousness were both present in that encounter. This is what we see in Jesus. And ultimately, we see that Jesus can be the expression of God's love and the standard of God's righteousness at the same time because of the cross. That's what you see when you look at the cross. On the one hand, in the one picture, you see the righteous standard of God that the cost of sin, the standard of righteousness was such that he would sin and destroy his own son in a bloody death on this cross. And in the very same picture, you see the love of God, of how far he would go to reconcile the people that he loved. The conundrum is resolved in the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the picture that we have as we go to relate to the conundrums in our life. We don't get to choose one of those pictures over the other because there's not two pictures, there's one. This is the nature of God. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ and this is the image into which we are being conformed. Love and righteousness united as one. Right? And if we in our natures are tend to pick one of those lenses or the other, because it's not easy to unite those two. Right? Probably you're going to be a little more naturally bent to, to the love lens or the righteousness lens. Right? People are identifying which one they are right now. Some, some people are going to be a little, more, a little quicker to see through the love lens. Right? And when you see people and you see situations, you are very aware of the suffering and weakness and difficulty of their lives. Right? You hear discussions about poverty in the U.S. and you think of the single mom with two kids, working two jobs, trying to make ends meet and hold everything together, doing all that she could. You're going to see your friends who are so beat up by life, they can hardly stand they can hardly think straight because of the pain that they're going through. You're going to look at, at difficult church situations and be very aware of the people who've been burned by that, the people who've been hurt by that, the pain that they still carry around and the, the difficulty they're going to have trusting in the future. But if you look through that lens too much, um, there's, there's something right about that lens. I don't want to downplay that lens because that, that is something right about God, Right that, that he does see sufferers. He does care about, if you read in the Old Testament, when he sees those who are oppressed and those who are difficult, he speaks about them with compassion, that he will defend them. He will come uh, to aid them and he will fight on their behalf. But if you look through that lens too much, you might find that you're prone just never to get around to talking about any sort of sin issues you might see in their life. You may not even see them. You may not recognize them. Right? All you're going to notice is, is the pain and the difficulty. You're not going to be willing to bring up. They're not going to be able to handle. It's going to be too hard for them. If I bring up, you know, that you're probably not thinking about that right. You probably shouldn't respond that way. We want to love people well. Jesus loved people well, but I'll just say this. If all you ever do when you look at someone who's suffering is see their suffering and you never notice their sin, you are not seeing them like Jesus saw them. And on the other side, people are going to. Some of us are going to be more prone to look through the righteousness lens, right? And when you look at situations or ideas or things people say, you're going to be the first thing you're going to think through is is what if that's right? What if that's wrong? What are the theological categories that apply to that? How do I think through this? Well, you're going to think of voices and books and concepts that you've read that give you insight into those situations. And listen, there's something good and right about that. When Jesus addresses situations. He is discerning. He cuts right to the heart of issues and he divides truth from error very effectively. But if all you see when you, when you encounter ideas, when you see people, when you deal with situations in the world is the black and white, the right and wrong, if that's all that you look at and are aware of, then you are not seeing clearly as Jesus saw because when Jesus saw those issues, he not only saw the right and wrong, he saw the people and the suffering, and he loved them. If you don't see the people and love them, you are not seeing clearly as Jesus saw. And, and, and just aside on this, just as I've been thinking through which one of those categories I find myself in, I, just, a, just a caution, just don't assume that you're always the same one. Because I I would put myself probably in the righteousness category a little more quickly. I think about a lot of things. I think about truth and I think about ideas and I hear ideas on podcasts and I talk to my wife about ideas on podcasts all the time and I'm quick to say, well, I think this but not this. But I'm aware that there are some situations I encounter with people that I love that are close to me where I put that lens down and I pick up the love lens and I become blind to the sin in their life. And the same may be true on the other side. If you pick up the love lens more quickly and that's you tend to care and be compassionate about people, I dare say there's going to be situations in life where you can't see through that lens. Maybe they're personal. Maybe they're, they're difficult situations for you and you're going to be quickest to pick up the right-wrong-righteousness lens. But listen, we who follow Christ must learn to be like he is to see through both of these at the same time. The world around us teaches us to respond to situations, to respond to conundrums with a, but what about? Right? They, they're talking about uh, poverty and issues of social injustice, and, and we're quick to say, but what about all of these other things? What about responsibility? What about truth? What about righteousness? Or you hear a pastor or someone in the church talk about the right and wrong of this, this issue and, and what the Bible has to say about it and, and you'll be quick to say, but what about this person and this situation and this complication? I think in Christ, we need to learn to respond with yes and. Yes, there are situations that are hard that we should have compassion on that, that poverty and the issues of, of the poor. Jesus came to restore the poor and he tells us to teach them all things that he has commanded us. Yes, love them and bring in righteousness. Yes, Jesus, the Bible is clear what it teaches about homosexuality and other hot topic issues today. Yes, it has clear things to say about this and we should know them and we should discern them. We should read our Bibles and know how to respond to those issues. And God so loved all of those people, all of the people with wrong ideas, all the people living wrongly, all the people who hate you, that he gave his son for them. Both of those things, we have to hold them together. And that's not going to be easy. No one looks at Jesus and says, oh, I could do that, right? That's not our response. If that's your response, you, you, we need to start this over. It's not going to be easy to hold together love and righteousness the way that God has revealed, but that's what we are called to. That's what we see contained in the person of Christ, and that's the image we are being conformed into. Next week we're going to look, there's so much that's stuffed into the person of Christ. We're going to take one more week and just look at a couple, the same idea just from a couple other lenses. In Christ we see love and righteousness are the same thing. And in Christ also we see that power and weakness are united. And that holiness and humility are expressed in the same person. So I hope you'll come back next week and continue this topic. Thank you.